Don't get up, it's only me. Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420 3XY. How are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six. 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3 E, the breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420, 3XY. Well, hi, and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves, our 40 minutes or so where we talk to the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And today's pilot loved a challenge. Rather than resting on his laurels and enjoying all that comes with being associated with the most popular commercial radio station in the country's biggest capital city, he chooses to be part of a greenfield opportunity to reshape the listening habits of the 18 to 24-year-olds in that particular marketplace. He has used a number of pseudonyms over the years, but it's Holger Brockman who's our pilot today. Olga Brockman, welcome to Pilots, and thanks for joining us. No, it's great to be here. Okay, let's go right back and retrace those footsteps from Hamlin in Germany to the Snowy Mountains in New South Wales. Now, that's one heck of a journey for a family to make. What do you remember about the move, and why did the family settle in Cooma? Cooma was um, the uh, headquarters for the Snowy Mountains Authority. You remember the Snowy Mountains scheme? Um, My uh, father was uh, involved... uh, with that, and uh, hence, uh, you know, the move to cool and very cool Kuma, <laughs> gateway to the Snowy Mountains. No, that's how we finished up there, and a great, great place to grow up to. Now, obviously, the local radio station 2XL made a significant impression on the young Holger to the point where you did a fairly comprehensive apprenticeship there. What do you remember of those days? Oh, terrific. Um, 2XL was, um, yeah, I was very fortunate to get a job there, but the local uh, owner, uh, his name was John Scott, um, did encourage local kids. Steve Liebman uh, started there. He started work at 2XL after school each day. And uh, about three or four local local kids got us started 2XL. It was a great little local station back when, Local stations were real local stations. Now, I doubt whether Lee Murray or Clark Sinclair had franchises in Cooma, so how did you go about honing your voice without, I assume, too much formal training? I I did go to Lee Murray's. I moved to Melbourne for, um, oh, I'm not sure. I can't remember how long. It's so long ago. I went to Lee Murray's for about six months, I guess. So not too long into the career... Hal Brockman landed a job working midnight to dawn at 3UZ in Melbourne at the time when UZ was the biggest player in town. What did you know about the station prior to arriving 
And what did you learn in your brief time there? Well, I, I got a shock. I, I was sort of more focused on Sydney and more aware of what was going on in Sydney. Uh, I'd, I'd seen 3Z every week on the back of B&T uh, with Lewis Bennett in his wonderful uh, bow tie. I knew that 3UZ was, was, yeah, must have been a pretty good station, but I had no idea just how big it was. Uh, I went from Cooma uh, to 3UZ, uh, and, uh, yeah, it was amazing. Just um, a huge audience. I can't remember what they had. Was it 30 40 50%? I mean, it was just ridiculous. So working mid-dawn on UZ around about that time, you were probably jammed in between Stan the Man at Night and Don Lund for breakfast. Um, yeah, well, I was sort of, when I got there, uh, I had to fill in for Stan. I was terrified most of the time. <laughs> from Kuma to 3UZ, <laughs> from 5,000 people probably to, to, to most of Melbourne was uh, was a bit of a shock. And then filling in for Stan, that was an even even greater shock. So most of the time I was traumatised. More music. More music. 3XY. Of course, not long after that, Holger, or Hal Brockman, disappeared off the scene and was replaced by Bill Drake. How and why did that come about? And how comfortable were you with the change? Oh, look, um, I... I'd worked before that name change. I'd worked as Holger Brockman in Newcastle, Canberra, and Newcastle is is sort of a pretty uh, how you going, you know, working class town at the uh, uh, at the time, with BHP still going. Um, it was um, they wanted something sort of snappier, and uh, yeah, I sort of when they when Rod Muir brought it up, he said, "Oh, Bill Drake." blah, blah, blah. I said, oh, really? Do we have to? He said, do you want the gig? And I said, well, okay, so I'm Bill Drake for a little while. So what part of the 70s evolution was XY at when you arrived? I was one of the first ones in there when it changed, when 2SM took over, when it changed format, when it went more music. Uh, There was myself uh, from Sydney, a fellow called John Simmons, who else? Greg uh, Smith, of course. Yeah, it was the first. Rick Melbourne. Oh, and there's a couple of others on the tip of my tongue. But, um, yeah, it was uh, owned by who had it the age, didn't they? But um, I remember somebody saying something. Uh, we wanted to do something, and, and uh, the station had 7%, and uh, Rod Muir said, oh, yeah, do what you like. No one's listening, you know, 7%. <laughs> How times have changed. Absolutely. Now, you've mentioned his name a couple of times. Can you tell us the influence that Rod Muir had on Australian radio in the 70s? Uh, look, he's a, he's a great radio person, Maverick. Uh, and he came in, or he was, he was there before it all corporatized. Yeah, I mean, he did things that uh, you probably wouldn't do today because everything is, is so corporatized. Everything's researched within an inch of its life and... He was a great, um, great old-fashioned radio man, you know. He uh, had a big influence on radio, obviously. Now, you stayed with Digger May, but moved up to another exceptionally popular station in 2SM in Sydney. What were the shifts you were working during the SM days, and was that prior to or during the October eras? Yeah, 
Yeah, that's uh, that's that's that was the Rocktober era. Um, 3XY, 2SM. Um, I went to Sydney floating, doing doing any shift. And the only thing I did on a regular basis was um, the album show, Sunday night album show, uh, as it was called then. Now, Holger, working at XY in Melbourne and SM in Sydney, how do you compare the two marketplaces? I've always loved Melbourne. Um, I actually, before I worked at 3UZ, I even did some freelance jobs at 3KZ back in the day of John Bryant. Um, Not many. Uh, I've always liked Melbourne because Melbourne's not as, I know it's a cliche, but it's not as brash. It's friendlier. Um, and, And somehow it's got a more European feel and Sydney is maybe more touch New York or whatever it is, I'm not sure. But Melbourne, Melbourne, I think, is a friendlier town. This is Pilots of the Airways. We are talking to Holger Brockman. And Holger, tell us about a lunch you had with Marius Webb and Ron Moss. Oh, oh Marius and uh, Ron, yeah, that was, um, that was an interesting change. Double Jake came along, yeah, that was, uh, that was pretty exciting stuff. And I guess that came because I'd been doing the album show. That's what they heard. And and the album show, being the only program that didn't just play top 40 singles, had a pretty sizable audience because that music wasn't exposed anywhere. So that audience was huge. And that's what uh, Double J then went on to cater for. Lots of the alternative, alternative music and... Uh, that was an interesting period, and then I, I joined uh, what was then known as the Contemporary Radio Unit, it used to be called. That's great, great uh, bureaucratic speak, isn't it? Contemporary <laughs> Radio Unit. <laughs> that was the start of Double J. But, yeah, that was exciting times. So you finish your nice lunch and you wander back to the 2SM studios. So what sort of a reception did you get when you arrived back at home base? Well, it, it funny, they must have heard something because they basically said oh you know you commit yourself to 2SM now or you can there's the door and uh, I I sort of thought oh <laughs> and Rod Muir was away Rod Muir was overseas so uh, and normally I dealt with Rod Muir uh, but this is the sort of upper, upper management who were normally pretty friendly, but not this time. <laughs> they basically said, either commit yourself here or, or go home. So I got up and left. Now, the Webb Moss pitch must have been something rather special because they were asking you to move on from the top-rating radio station in Sydney for, I assume, less money to a government station with no listeners, dodgy studios, and a frequency so far up the dial that even Marconi would have trouble finding it. They must have done the pretty hard sell on you. Well, they didn't. They didn't give them do any sell actually i heard what the station was going to be about and and i i kind of had that bill drake format i mean bill drake i was named after an american programmer called bill drake phil something yabra i think his real name was he this american programmer came up with the short playlist 30 records time temperature keep everything very tight and and repetitive and it was hugely successful but i was pretty tired of that format by that stage i enjoyed doing the album show which was pretty free form that music wasn't heard exposed at the time so what they were doing appealed to me hugely 
and uh, you know hang the expense you kind of at that age you tend to follow heart as much as head more so now the guys made it clear that they were looking to recruit people who had and i quote a sense of the ridiculous were they successful in their search oh crazy yeah totally totally ridiculous i mean it, you know it was its strength and its weakness i guess uh and it always is but yeah look uh at the time, it was fairly radical, but if you listen back now to the music that was then played on Double J and everybody thought was so radical, now it's middle of the road. Yeah, it was pretty uh, pretty exciting. Um, and uh, the comedy that Marius, for example, and Ron put together on the station, uh, there was some amazingly clever stuff on there. <laughs> So the first day on air was the 19th of January 1975 at 11am and you were assigned to introduce the world to 2 Double J. Now it's folklore of course that it all began with Skyhook's You Just Like Me Cause I'm Good In Bed. A strategically chosen song or was it just sitting on the turntable at the time? Uh... No, no, no. That was um, strategically chosen, um, and I think Ron came up with that and had a pretty good reason. And um, and uh, at the time, and uh, it was a pretty exciting band. Made a statement. Yeah, no, that was that was strategic. Your second song, Sympathy for the Devil, also smacked of anti-establishment as well. So how much control or say did you have in the music played on your particular shift? Uh, that The Rolling Stones, that was my choice. Um, and purely because it's great music, it's a great rolling classic Rolling Stones track that didn't get much airplay at the time. And it was kind of cheeky, you know, uh, at the time, and and I thought, oh well, people will try and read all sorts of stuff into this. Let's go with this. Simple as that. It was just just good music. Uh, the the first choice was Ron Moss, uh, Skyhooks, and everybody agreed with it, so there was no problem there. Um, we usually worked with programmers, uh, but that first shift was was mainly myself because. Uh, Actually, I'd been at the station doing test broadcasts for, what, three or four months before that, uh, overnight, going on air for a few hours just to make sure everything worked. But but that was pretty, you know, groundbreaking stuff, that music. Uh, yeah, and we all, had, we all had input. Nobody was really that precious. Oh, yeah, hang on. On, on occasions we were, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of other precious radio personalities, did you work on any of your former commercial colleagues to entice them to the ratings-free Double J? I influenced as many commercial people to go to Double J as I could. There were a couple of uh, engineers, producers, uh, Carl Tyson Hall and Tony Paulson. There was Alan McGurvin. There were a couple of uh, – there was Graham Berry, his commercial – uh, there was a fairly sort of strong commercial influence there at the time to give it an interesting mix. And uh, the commercial guys, like in my case, I always had one eye on the ratings and, and one eye 
to me, it was keep the customer satisfied. You know, you were there for the audience. And, and uh, if people didn't listen, there's no point being there, really, I guess. So, yeah, I was always conscious of uh, wanting to have as many listeners as possible, of course. So how well do you feel the station was accepted by the Sydney marketplace while you were there? Back then, it was really polarised, you know, that people either loved you or hated you. Um, and there were examples of that occasionally, you know, getting the cold shoulder in a shop or something. Uh, a bit strange the first time. But, yeah, it was, it was passionate sort of um, either way. The, the audience uh, that loved it, was, they were just unbelievable. Yeah, fantastic. Now, it seemed like a seismic shift leaving Double J in 1977 and joining Mellow Rock 2GB, a station that took a punt with an edgy format playing artists such as Yes. Now, Paul Thompson was in charge at the time, but only for a short time. Did he fall or was he pushed? Oh, yeah, no, he was, uh, everybody was pushed out. Um, that was, was too much. He didn't have a contract, apparently. That was a bridge too far for the old times at 2GB. <laughs> it, it, um, it would have worked, um, but, yeah, it was a bridge too far for them. You know, Paul Thompson didn't cover his butt and boom, out everybody went. And, again, look, in retrospect, amazing to be, have been a part of. I mean, I thought it was brilliant radio um, and um, some interesting people. Uh, there, Barry Bissell, Vince Lovegrove, um, and and all the rest of them. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't to be. So when you look back now, Holger, what ultimately was more enjoyable, the cut and thrust of commercial radio or the freedom of the ABC? What's more enjoyable? Uh, look, I, I, I like the ABC. Uh, they're, they're different. It's uh, totally different. The motivation is money uh, in commercial. You know, my heart's with the ABC. Uh, I keep going back to the ABC, and I've been there quite a while now. They are what they are. I mean, I I listen to the ABC, so I haven't listened to commercial for a long time. Occasionally, I flick across, see what they're doing. It's it's changed enormously, as you know. It's uh, it's a different beast. It is what it is, I guess. But uh, you yeah, know, ABC's where my heart is, I guess. Now, Holger, in 1980, you were not only playing the fantastic black plastic, you were also laying tracks down yourself. I am Irish. I am English. I am Italian, Greek and Slav. I came from many places to this brave new land. In chains, in uniforms, in rags and rich regalia. I'm black, I'm white, I'm wrong, I'm right. I am Australian. I Am Australia was a poem put to words. How did that little project come about? Oh, I got talked into that. Hang on. Who, that was Jimmy Stewart and uh, Jimmy Stewart and uh, what's his name? Guy used to be in a band called Unit 5 Plus 2, a lovely, lovely guy. Um, oh, I can't remember his name. Jimmy Stewart worked with Doug Ashdown. Uh, he wrote Winter in America and... Uh, he wrote that and I, in, a, in a weak moment. I said, yeah, I'd do it and then did it. And uh, there, there it is. I'm not quite sure. 
Jimmy, another Jimmy Stewart project. I wonder where Jimmy is. He's a lovely man. He went to Nashville. Went to Nashville, that's right. Just wondering, was there any thought of a follow-up single? <laughs> oh, very funny. Look, that's so bad, it didn't even make the worst records of the decade. I mean, how bad's it got to be? Yep, it was pretty bad. Hey, Holger, if we can just momentarily backtrack to the early 70s with Bill Drake of 3XY, when you finished your shift that night and wandered down to mm, Bertie's or Peanuts or maybe Thump and Tum to Unwind, who was introduced to the ladies? Was it Bill Drake or Holger Brockman? Uh, uh, I was sort of Bill Drake everywhere but at home, I guess. Uh, otherwise, it gets too confusing. Or sometimes both. Sometimes both, and there'd be quizzical looks. Just became a work name. Yeah, but but I mean, changing it back at Double J was a talk good talking point. Finally, just sticking with the pseudonyms for a moment, it wasn't totally uncommon at the time, was it? No great shakes. There was Bill Drake. There was Greg Smith had Dick Starr. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody else had Mark Antony. Les Pridmore got George Moore, and and you know what? Um, uh, there was one point there where there was a recording session. Everybody had jingles. Bill Drake plays more music and all this sort of stuff. So they thought, oh, well, we've got a recording session now. We might have a few more announcers coming. So they thought up some names and recorded some jingles, and then the jingles were pulled out here. Now, you're, you're going to be Dick Starr. There's your jingle. Okay, okay, I'm Dick Starr, right? Who we got next? Oh, Mark Antony. Okay, Mark Antony will be our next announcer. And that, and that's in the end how it worked. On behalf of everybody at Double J, welcome. Guess who's nervous? <laughs> nervous as can be. Uh, my name is uh, Holger Brockman, uh, alias Bill Drake. And, uh, well, let's, let's go. Okay, Holger, a dozen or so quick-fire jock questions. The first one we start off with is... Where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? Well, I saw that and I tried to remember and I thought, no, well, I can't cheat. No, I can't remember. I, I don't, can't remember. Terrible thing to admit to. People will go, oh, but I can't remember. Okay, how about the last concert ticket you paid for? Can't remember that either. I don't think I've ever paid for one. <laughs> no. I, look, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think it was the ballet. Mm, that's a first. A concert act that you regret never seeing. Queen, I, I think. I didn't ever see Queen. I would have liked to have seen Queen when Freddie Mercury was, uh, was still with them. They, uh, they were something. Is there a word that you had most trouble pronouncing on air? Word I had most trouble pronouncing on air? Um, look, there's, I, there's, I remember one. I remember I was in Canberra and I'd never heard Alliance Francaise uh, and I got it in a copy, and I thought, what the hell is that? You know, so I thought, well, there's only one thing we can do here. We can instantly attempt to turn this into really bad humour. So I said, there'll be a meeting at Elias Francis tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock, blah, 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 and kept going. <laughs> and a friend of mine heard it and <laughs> couldn't believe it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I didn't, know, I didn't know how to pronounce that, so um, I made the most of it. Now, Holger, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking that you might get those don't-come-Monday orders? Oh, plenty of those. I can't remember any in particular, but um, no, not, not – look, I was always fairly lucky that, that um, I always knew exactly how far I could go 
and I, when it counted, I had good management. Now I had plenty of bad ones. The the, the bad outnumber the good, but um, I occasionally pushed it to the point where, oh, only in one instance, and I don't want to sort of go there, but uh, I knew if I would do a certain thing, I'd get fired, and it it have sort of some reaction. So I rang home and I said, look, I'm about to do this and this and this, you know, the ship's going to hit the sand. Just thought I'd let you know. Ah, oh, okay. It was, you know, and by the way, can you pick up another pint of milk on the way home? Sure. When you're young, you do kind of, or I worked a lot from instinct. And if I didn't like where I was, I didn't usually stay there for too long. And I guess I was always pretty lucky uh, when it counted having good management there. Skyhooks or Sherbet, but I think I know the answer. Uh, well, Skyhooks for obvious reasons, yeah. But Sherbet, hey, they're two great Aussie bands, you know. What What can you say? I think they're both great. Skyhooks, just a nuts bit in front. The Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Again, you know, how can you pick? But uh, probably Rolling Stones by half a nose, as they say. Do you have a most treasured piece of memorabilia from those rock and roll days of the 70s? Uh, look, yeah, yeah, I guess I have, yeah, yeah, silly stuff. Rodriguez, gold record, a couple of other little things, real, now that I think of it. What was the biggest news story that broke while you were on air? Uh, that's biggest, it was, there's a few. There's um, the Threadbow disaster, there was... Uh, Princess Di, um, there was uh, the Newcastle earthquake, there was the big uh, uh, tsunami, that giant tsunami that swept across Asia. So, yeah, that's well, there's four or five, yeah, I was on air for all of those. The best words of advice from a program manager? Best word of advice? I didn't ever get a good bit of advice from a program manager. Can't think of one single one. Holger, if it wasn't a career in radio, what might it have been? I had to think about that. No, I look, have I look, I've been doing it for so long, I wouldn't, I don't know. I don't know. I had fantasies about owning a gift shop at one stage, but that didn't ever happen. Finally, two albums that may have been the soundtrack of your teenage years. Oh, The Doors. As, as a teenager, I mainly was into singles. I, I came into music later. Uh, like early 20s, and it was stuff like The Doors, uh, uh, Janis Joplin, uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company, and, and that, that sort of era, I guess. Hey, Holger, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through some of the highlights of your very successful radio career. You'll always be an important part of Australian radio history, and thanks for joining us on Pilots. No, thank you for having me. All the best. Olga Brockman on Pilots of the Airwaves.